Hello, this is former Fox Sports Wisconsin anchor and proud fellow Wauwatosan Jeff Grayson. From my position high in the booth, it appears conditions are good for this much-anticipated matchup. Let's go down to the studio. The action is about to start. It's season four of the Bait and Switch podcast. Welcome back to the Bait and Switch podcast. My name is Jim Martin, and as always, I'm with my co-host, Chris Beyer. Hello. It's a very special night tonight on the Bait and Switch podcast. If anybody in the Wisconsin area has followed baseball at all in the last 30-plus years like we have, you know our next guest. He's a Kiwani, Wisconsin native, and he played on the 1982 Brewers World Series team. We know him as Augie. Mr. Jerry Augustine joins us tonight. Thanks for being here, Augie. Oh, great to be with you, Jim and Chris. It's, uh, it's nice to always uh, get up and talk some baseball, and uh, that was a good time to, to have it tonight as we get into the season. Yeah, really, uh, this is like a, a real honor. I mean, this is, uh, I'm, I'm not usually nervous when I do the show, and this is, uh, I think, the second time I've really been nervous. Like we've done, this is the fourth season. Like, oh, my heart's thumping a little bit. I've been, been want, pacing the kitchen back and forth. Oh, my gosh, I got this thing in an hour. It's great. But, uh, yeah, so, so I'm, really, uh, I'm really excited about this one. Yeah, definitely. We'll have fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you, uh, as far as our age group is concerned, you know, you were our youth. You know, we were kids when you were pitching for the Brewers, and I'm sure that's, you get the biggest reaction out of people that are probably 10, 15 years younger than you, right? Yeah, we do. You know, it's a, there's a funny story that goes with that. At the end of my career, I was with the Baltimore Orioles. And uh, the last year that I played, I really wasn't going to play, but I decided to go back and at least try. So I went to spring training. I was only there for like three days. And they, they just set you up at a roommate uh, to suffice because I was only going to be there about a week. And uh, they put me with a young kid that was drafted in, out of Texas. And I walked in and I put my my stuff down in a room and he looked at me and says, are you really Jerry Augustine? And I go, yeah. He says, when I was three years old, I went to, I went to Ranger Stadium and I saw you pitching the game. i tell you what, right then I felt <laughs> real old. So, right. uh, so it, 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 we do go back a while, but, uh, and it's great to, to see kids that know that you played and watched when you played. And that was a great story. You know what, uh, I was going to save this question for the end of this half of our podcast, but you addressed something that surprised me a little bit. I was under the assumption that you only played for the Brewers. Now, when you went back to play for the Orioles, was it just as part of spring training and you didn't play with them during the season? Because I didn't see any stats for the Baltimore Orioles. Well, I actually, uh, I became a free agent with the Brewers in 1985. And in 1985, uh, um, I didn't sign with back with the Brewers. Uh, um, I think they were going in a different direction at the time. And, and so I ended up signing with the Baltimore Orioles. I went to spring training with the Orioles. And uh, I had a tough time in that spring training. So my dad passed away uh, during spring training. And I, I happened to go had to go home and uh, spend some time with my mom. She's really struggling and ended up staying there for a long period of time and didn't get back to spring training for about a week or 10 days. And it got me behind the eight ball a little bit, but uh, I got to pitch about several spring training games with the Orioles. And then from there, they asked me to go to AAA for a while. And I ended up spending the whole 85 season in AAA with the Orioles. Okay. Okay. And again, that goes back to the question I was going to answer, which is, you know, once a brewer, always a brewer. Uh, but you were briefly an Oriole. 
and you're so identified with the Brewers, uh, was it difficult for you to put on a different uniform? Very much so. You know, it's it, the unique thing, and I think if you ever talk to Jim Gander, he would say the same thing. Oh, Willie Miller out of West Bend, uh, these guys who have got, who are from Wisconsin and played got to play in Wisconsin, is that you know you you grow up and your your dreams are to play Major League Baseball, and the bigger dream is to play Major League Baseball in your home state. And when I was growing up, of course, I had the I had my idols of of Eddie Matthews and Hank Aaron and Joe Edcock and, and Warren Spahn and all those guys. Well, you know, it came to fruition that I first got called up in 1975 at the end of the season. And I walked into the clubhouse and what's the first locker that I see Hank Aaron. So uh, when you talk about coming full circle and getting a, having a dream come true uh, that day, my dream did come true. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. So you obviously were a, a Braves fan. I wasn't sure, you know, Braves or Twins or, you know, you don't know where the where the, the loyalties might lie there. But how was it for you when the Braves left town? What was that like? I struggled because I, I you know, I, I knew all the Braves. And, you know, yeah. when you're kids, you go out and you play wiffle ball and home run derby. And um, I used to, my dad actually, we had a, our house is up on a little hill and he painted a, a strike zone on the side of the house. And I used to, I, I tell you what, I was Warren Spahn and Luberdet. I bet you, I, one year, I bet you Luberdet threw over a thousand innings because I was out there every day playing. And I was, when I got the hit, I was Eddie Matthews or Hank Aaron or Joe Edcock or Billy Bruton. And, you know, and, and so when you, when you, when you're a fan of that, you don't leave that. I followed them to Atlanta, but then at that time, the, the team that you saw on TV more than anything was the Chicago Cubs. And I became a Cub fan for a while. Oh, okay. Okay, we'll edit that out. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We can't have that on the air. Uh, Now, getting back to being a kid, wanting to be baseball, you know, every kid wants to be a baseball player or a sports star, right? So what happened? What was there a moment where you matched, where you mastered a pitch in high school or college, or maybe you had this game where you were just the man on the mound where all of a sudden you realized maybe I could make a career out of this. What was that moment like? You know, it, honestly, honestly, God, guys, it's really following your dream uh, is, is having a dream about being able to accomplish something really cool and, and p- playing on a major league level. And I think that comes as a kid when you're playing and you uh, one day you're spawn or Boudet and Aaron or Matthews or whomever it was uh, um, or Ernie Banks when I became a Cub fan. But, uh, you know, it's that dream. And I think as I got into high school, I, was, I went from being in the eighth grade and pitching on the varsity in high school. And then when I was age 14, I couldn't even, couldn't even drive yet, but played in a, the minor league national tournament in, in Madison. So right then, I think I got to start off that maybe I could reach something. But it really was just... Uh, being able to being able to go and play and loving it and playing every day and in the summertime, uh, baseball was my love and I, I played football and basketball in high school, but baseball was really my love and I just followed it and all of a sudden uh, at my senior year in high school, um, I unfortunately got a football injury which held me back a little bit, but all of a sudden my fastball got pretty good and and uh, from there I went on to college at Lacrosse and was drafted by Milwaukee after my junior uh, senior year. Was there ever a backup plan? Did you have a, another, another career path uh, just in case? I was actually uh, was, was offered a, a uh, contract to teach, uh, teach uh, junior high school around lacrosse. And uh, I believe it was on Alaska, if I'm not, if, don't uh, give me if I'm not correct there. But I was going to go into teaching. Uh, 
you go lacrosse. It's an excellent FIED uh, school and getting a good education. I got a great education at lacrosse. I, was, I uh, graduated in 1974, and about two weeks after my graduation, I was out working at a lumber mill uh, with my best friend, and I got a call from the boss that saying that, hey, you got to come here. Someone from the Brewers wants to talk to you. And I went in, and sure enough, it was Amo Bellick who told me I was just drafted by Milwaukee. Wow. Wow, that's wild. So you talked a little bit about Hank Aaron, and when you joined the team, Hank Aaron was kind of at the tail end of his career. So how do, you, how do you guys know kind of when it's time to kind of hang it up? You know, sometimes, sometimes you don't. I think mm-hmm. when you're, you're still feeling that you can go and participate, I, I think you feel uh, that you can continue to play. I think I could still play at the end of my career. It's just that I had to make a family decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, for someone as great as Hank Aaron and some of the players that are Hall of Famers and have great careers, I think they understand that, you know what, they can't perform at the level that they want. And it's time to take that next step. But for me, um, I really thought I could continue playing. But at that time, uh, I had been in the major leagues for 10 years. Um, I was in the minor leagues and things weren't going well for me. And I don't know if I could say it was more of a mental thing or ability wise. I know it wasn't because I threw harder when I was older than when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it just came to a time where uh, I had to make a family decision and uh, we just had twins at that time, so I had to make a decision. I made a decision uh, to be a dad. Sure. And, of yeah. course, you were the ripe old age of 32 when this happened. Right. Yeah. That's right. I, I think that would be just getting into my prime nowadays or getting yeah. towards the end of your prime. But uh, I still threw the ball very well. And, and it really, uh, when I did quit, I, was, uh, act- uh, I did get a call from a number of teams to go try to play. And it, it's just that you have to make that decision. And, uh, you know, I, I was out of the minors then for about one or two years. And I didn't feel like unless I could get to the major league level, would I go back. But I, I think if I had to do it over again, I probably would have given it one more shot because I, I was throwing the ball very well. I worked out all winter long. I worked hard at it. Uh, and But maybe giving it one more shot just to say I can't do it. Uh, sure. But you know what? I don't look back. I made the right decision. And uh, I moved on with my life. Yeah, you know, a lot of times you hear guys say a half of this person is, is better than, you know, a, an average player. So even if you're not playing at your peak levels, I think about a lot of times about Brett Favre with this situation, you know, where he's, he's That's uh, right. you know, going back and forth. And understandably so, he could still play, but his body was getting beat up and then he had family situations and stuff, you know. And so there's, there's a lot of tricky things that come into that decision, I'm sure. But I was just curious what you thought about that. Yeah, yeah it is. It's a tough decision. And, you know, when, when guys uh, say that this is it, um, I think um, it, it is an extremely tough decision. And I, I think I should have been more positive. I, I look back, things I do today, and I coached at UWM for, a number, for a, several years. And the, from the, my time as a player really helped me be a better coach. And I think if you talk to Craig Council, the way he, his career went and the style of player he was, makes him a better manager today, a better way of handling people. You, you have a better understanding. And I, I think he's the best manager in all of baseball. Yeah. But I, at the same time, I think his experience understands that patience. And you have to understand people, people do things in different ways and, and go about it in different ways and uh, to be successful. I probably would have given it one more year. But you know what? I don't look back. I don't say, hey, I made a wrong decision. I just say that, you know what? Uh, I'm going to move on. And I learned so much that it's helped me do some, a lot of fun things in, in today's world. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And continue right. in the baseball career. Well, you started in 75 
And those Brewer team, teams of our youth kind of languished uh, uh, in the bottom of the division there for quite a while. But then in 1978, things kind of turned around and the Brewers also became a force. It, was it more, were you more excited to be a player on that team or were you more excited to be a fan of the Brewers? And were you watching it kind of vicariously as a fan almost? Well, I, you know, I, I think when you, when you look at it, I go back to when I was drafted. Uh, drafted in 1974, uh, one round behind, or two rounds behind Jim Gantner. And I remember when I signed, I had never been to a major league game in my life. And uh, Brewers were playing the Oakland A's. And so I uh, went to Milwaukee, went to the game, and I was sitting with the, the scout who's, who's uh, drafted me, Amo Bellick. And Kevin Koble was pitching that day. And Kevin was a good pitcher. He threw the ball really well, nice guy. And and um, I, as I sat there, Emil turned to me and he says, I want to tell you one thing right now. Your stuff is as comparable right now as what Kevin's doing on that mound. Well, right there, I mean, that's all he had to say. And I, I was going to get that opportunity in. But, you know, it was, it was fun to see this brew organization. It was hard when I first came up. I came up at the end. Of, I was in the minors in 1974. I hurt my knee in spring training in 75 and made it to the big leagues by the end of 75, which was a, I thought it was a pretty nice accomplishment, only pitching probably probably less than 30 games in the minors. And uh, I got very lucky because they needed left-hand pitching. I got a chance, and uh, I was able to do well at the end of 75 and, and then went on from there the rest of my career. Now, when you came up, you were, you were a starter, right? When I first came up, I, I was a reliever. I, relieved a, just, I just relieved a month of September for maybe three games. Okay. I think I pitched against the Orioles and Yankees and some of that. And then on the way home, uh, flying home from Boston, uh, uh, Del Crandall came up to me. He says, uh, I came up to me, he says, well, uh, I just want to, you, you're coming to the game tonight, aren't you? He said it as a joke. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, uh, the reason you have to be there is because you're starting. Oh. And so I was starting against the Yankees that night. So it wow. was uh, – Pretty exciting. I think it was better that he told me later. Otherwise, I'd have been worrying about it all night, probably when I slept. But uh, it worked out really well. And uh, got the pitch against the Yankees my first start and ended up with a big win. Oh, that's yeah, that's great. Um, and then you transitioned later into a reliever. And I was wondering, like, how did that, how did that go for you? How did it feel? Does it feel, does it feel like a step down to go from, from a starter to a reliever? Or is it just like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here to help and I can actually pitch more often? Well, I think in today's world, it'd say it would be say, hey, you know what? This guy's versatile, and he can do mm-hmm. a lot of different things. Yeah. And I think when, uh, when George Bamberger came up to me and he said, Augie, you're just struggling as a starter right now. So what we would like to do is we'd like you to go and work, work yourself out in the bullpen for a little while. And I said, it doesn't mean you're not a starter anymore. It just means that I like to see what you can do out of, out of the bullpen. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what they did. They actually put me in a lot of different situations. They put me in a long relief a couple of times. They put me in middle and even closed a couple of games. And uh, by doing that, he came up to me and says, you know what? That versatility that you have is so valuable to a team. I think for the time being right now, please think of yourself as a reliever, but that doesn't mean you're not going to start. And that's exactly what did happen. After that time, I was a reliever most of the time, but ended up starting three or four or five games, six games a year and really helped the ball club. Sure. Yeah. Those long relievers are really uh, coming really critical at times when guys get in trouble for a second inning and you got to pull them like, well, what do I do now? Well, we got this guy and he's perfect, you know? Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was a a great experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I look back on it, I I showed versatility and I think what it was is I was the kind of guy that I could, I could, 
throw every day. It didn't make any difference. Uh, I know one of the fantasy campers came up to me last year at fantasy camp and said that, Augie, do you know that in the month of May in 1975 or 1976, I think it was 76, that you started seven games in the month of May and completed all seven. Now you think about that, seven games starting, seven games completed. I didn't believe him. I had to go back and look. Yeah. And actually it did work out that I, I got to start seven games and completed all seven games. Wow. Yeah, that's unheard of today. <laughs> it, it is. It's very seven unusual. Seven games in a season, <laughs> that's, let alone a month, yeah. Yeah. So, so what's, the, what's the difference between, say, um, you know, the teams of 76, 77, where you guys were winning 60, 70 games or whatever it was, to all of a sudden 78 where you guys are contending? Uh, is it a mind, mindset shift by some players, or is it just new talent or developing talent that really changed your fortunes? Honestly, God, I think, I think, Chris, it's a little bit of both. I think it, what, what, you're, what you're seeing there, it's, it's a little bit of, of guys becoming better and understanding the game of baseball. But I think we had a little bit of a culture change. Uh, they, they brought in George Bamberger. And when you think about bringing in Bambi, he kind of changed things. I remember when he came over in 1978, when he came over, he took all the pitchers in, the, in a room and he put down a number on the board. And that number was the number of walks that our pitching staff gave up the prior year. And he put a circle around it and he put, he went down and he put down, if you have this many less and he put down uh, 20% less walks, I'm going to tell you what, we're going to win a lot of ball games. And then he put the, another percentage of 30%. He said, you do that, we might win a pennant. And you know what? I think we did somewhere between 20 and 30, and we ended up like six games out of first place. That first year was a, a real good year. But then again, we had some new players. Everybody understood it. And, and George really had a positive effect on with his coaching staff on all the players. And every day was fun to come to the ballpark. And uh, the culture changed. And, uh, and you have to give the credit to the Brewer organization for that. Sure. Yeah. So as most people in Wisconsin know, uh, 1982 was the Brewers, the, the year the Brewers went to the World Series. Um, and getting to the playoffs back then was a lot more difficult than it is now because there's only the top top teams in every division. And, uh, and it was really uh, a lot about, about excellence because, you know, only the teams that, that rise to the top, you know, are allowed to move on to the, to the postseason. So do you think that the, the best team – uh, usually wins the World Series, or, or once you hit the playoffs, is it kind of a kind of a crapshoot? You know, who just happens to be playing hot that at that time of year, and and who's healthy? I think getting to the playoffs is the main thing. Whether it's back back when I played or or today, if you can get to the playoffs, anything can happen because you just don't know. You have a, a couple pitchers who are hot, and all of a sudden get in there and pitch a great ball game. You get an offense that goes out and scores some runs. You do still. I think the the three ingredients about the game of baseball is pitching hitting and fielding. If you do well at all three, you have a chance to win any ball game and every ball game. And I think that's one thing that when you look at teams that kind of make it, even though they may make it as a wild card or whatever it is, they get to that time of year where all of a sudden they're clicking in all three spots. And, you know, pitching usually wins. That's what usually is it. Everything comes down to pitching and can you close out games? Can you start games and have your starter go long enough? But it's really the bullpen that really changes the complexion of the game. And I think when you look at it, uh, pitching is very is so important. But you really have to play well in all three phases in order to win. And that's what happens with a team when they get to the playoffs. Uh, now, you talked about pitching and good pitching. Now, Jim actually pitched a fair amount in his years uh, here. I wasn't much of a baseball player. But 
uh, there's got to be a huge mental component, I guess, to pitching and hitting, but to pitching, they really know you got that stuff on that day. When you have one of those days where you just, you know, you have your stuff, that's really got to be something. You got to be on top of the world when that happens. Oh, it really is, Chris. It's great, isn't it? No, no, that question for some more. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> there you go, Jim. <laughs> uh, it is. It really is. I think there's three components of pitching that are are extremely important. First of all, it's the physical part. That that physical side. Do you have? Are you physically the have the ability to throw the ball? and pitch the ball and and do you have the quality pitches that that's that physical part i think the next part is that that mental part the part that do you understand what the pitches you have do and when you take the, the physical part of being able to throw the pitches and you add the mental part to that being able to to execute those pitches it's so important but i think there's another ingredient that we you don't hear about in baseball too much and that's to be able to come up with a sequence of pitching how your pitches affect a hitter when you pitch them in situations. And that's why you hear a lot on TV today. And as, a, as, you, as you hear talk, uh, people talk about pitching is, oh, what sequence did he use? Let's go back and check out the sequences this pitcher uses. And, and I think uh, when, you, when you talk about sequencing, understanding what your pitches do and how they affect the guy at the plate and how we react to them is the one of the most important parts. When you make it to the big leagues, you do have the ability. Physically, you're good enough. You do have the breaking stuff or you do have the fastball, curveball, change up, whatever your repertoire is to make it there. But it's that sequencing, understanding to be able to make, uh, make changes and understand that, that when you're on the mound, that those sequences that you use and how hitters affect them and how, what you're going to do with that sequence with each hitter is so important. Yeah, it's yeah. really crazy how much of a – almost a mind battle it is between the hitter and the pitcher. The batters, you're trying to guess what the pitch is coming, you know, and the, and the pitcher's obviously trying to change his eyes, you know, bring it up top for the high. Absolutely. You're, you're right. All that stuff. Execution, uh, execution. Uh, you can have all the pitches in the world, but if you can't execute them, you can't pitch. That's right. just, that's the way it is unless you're gifted and throw a hundred miles an hour, but you know, yeah. then you're going to be a closer and you're going to pitch to one, one inning a game. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, talking yeah. about hitters, and rivals. Uh, what team do you think of your era was the Brewers, big, the Brewers' biggest rival? And and who are some of the players that that you really dreaded facing? Wow, um, Yankees were always. I mean, anytime the Yankees and the Brewers were involved, uh, if it was at at, at County Stadium, you were going to have. I remember in a four game series, we had a a Friday night single game, a Saturday doubleheader, and a Sunday single game. They drew more than 54,000 on each game, at each game. So uh, Yankees were always a big part because they were in our division. Uh, Baltimore Orioles were always tough. Um, when you talk about the Yankees, they were always at the top. I mean, they had good teams. They had really good pitching. Uh, and uh, 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 when you look at it, some of the teams that were tough to face were, I think Minnesota was always a little bit of a, a thorn in my side with some of the hitters they had. I mean, when you go back and you look at Rod Carew and Lyman Bostock and some of those guys, I mean, they were really a good offensive ball club. And, and then at times I thought always uh, Kansas City was always a good ball club, a very good offensive ball club uh, to play against. Was there any one particular hitter that you remember was just never wanted to see that guy? I'll tell you a story. There's one guy that I couldn't get out. And when I say his name, you'll go, him? Jerry <laughs> Remy. Jerry Remy, a little second baseman with California Angels, Boston Red Sox. Okay. I could not get the guy out. A real quick story is we're playing in Boston, 
and uh, Charlie Moore's catching me. And he's, and we're going over to over to players and he says, how are you going to pitch Remy? I said, I don't, I, I struggle with Remy. I don't know why, but I just struggle a lefty on lefty and I can't get the guy out. So the first time in, I go and I throw him a sinking fastball on the inside part of the plate. I jam him and he gets enough bat on the ball. It goes, goes over Cecil's head in the right field for a double. Of course. Of course. So, so I, I looked at Charlie and Charlie just shrugged his shoulders. Well, next time up, I went inside off the plate and threw him a slider away off the end of the bat over Don Money's head at third base for a double in the, in the left field. So now this guy's probably hitting 800 against me all my career. Not him. So I go in there and Charlie says, I think I got something on you. I think I got it. So I didn't know what he, what he was going to do. So next time Jerry Remy come up, he put down fastball. I threw a fastball right down the middle. He had a line drive right at Jim Gander at second base. So I got up, came off, and I said, Charlie, what did you do? He said, I told him a fastball was coming. And so, uh, so I, I – I don't know if that was it, but uh, Jerry Remy was just, you know, he was one of those guys that for a little guy and a, a spunky little hitter was always tough for me to get out. How about uh, Reggie Jackson? That would be the most feared player that I think a lot of people would think from that era. Reggie Jackson signed a baseball for me after his career that said to Augie, thanks for getting me in the Hall of Fame, Reggie Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh but no, early in my career, I made, I made some mistakes. Uh, I think I, I, I lost like five games in my first two years because of Reggie Jackson. He hit a three or four home runs off of me, and I was really struggling with him. And after the first two years, I, would, I vowed to myself that I was going to get him out, and I wasn't going to ever let him beat me. And so I watched a lot of film on him that winter. And believe it or not, uh, we'd go in, and prior to that, I'd come walking out, and Reggie would all say, hey, Hog, how you doing, all that stuff. Well, I think the next, I believe out of the next 17 times at bat, I don't think he got, I don't think he got a base hit. And all of a sudden the things started changing, but I started watching what Reggie does to his approach. When Reggie was hitting good and he came into your city and he's got a good, he's had a hot week, that means he's covering the outside of the plate really well. You have to pitch him in. So every time I knew that he was swinging about well, I would just pound the inside part of the plate on him. When he'd come in and he'd been struggling a little bit, I'd show in and throw him a little breaking ball away, and I'd get I, – I can't tell you how many ground balls that Jimmy Gander I got because a lot of me – Reggie was – I never forget that he hit into a double play against the Angels when he was with them against me. And Gumby said, I knew exactly where to play him because he's hit the ball to me like 10 times against you right there. So it, it was just I, – I had success because I, I changed my plan against him, and I was pretty lucky. Was, was he not so happy to see you then after that? Not so, not so, hey, Augie, how's it <laughs> He didn't really say a lot to me after right, that, you know. Right. And I, I, but I love facing him. I mean, you, you always want to face the best. And uh, Reggie was, was one of those guys when, he, I'll tell you, when Reggie Jackson was hot, he hit the ball all over the plate. You had to really, you had to make sure that you really got, you showed him away and got in on him really good. If you got in on him and knew you were going on his hands, then you could get him out. But uh, uh, he's a really good hitter and uh, he's not known for Mr. October for nothing. He's, he could swing the bat a little bit. Right, right. Now, now you mentioned Gantner, uh, Jim Gantner, a couple of times, and we actually, I uh, hope to get Jim Gantner on the podcast here. We've got an, an in through somebody here. Uh, you grew you, up kind of, yeah, you, you grew up not far from him. He's from Eden, Wisconsin, which isn't that far from Kiwani. Did you guys know each other as high schoolers? No, no. In fact, we didn't. We didn't get to know each other until college, actually. Uh, he went to Oshkosh. I went to lacrosse. My brother was a football player at, at Oshkosh. I knew Jimmy had Jimmy in a couple classes. And then after my first year, we played against each other. In the summertime, we ended up playing in tournaments or something like that. And we always 
three or four times we had played against Jimmy's team. So uh, we became friends uh, really through my brother, uh, my brother Dale at, well, he was at Oshkosh. And uh, um, uh, he's, a, he's a great guy. He's one of my best friends. Um, he's just, uh, he's the kind of guy that when you take uh, a guy with his ability that he had and make the most out of that, you, that ability, because he just would not give in to anybody, uh, you have to applaud uh, Jim Gander. I, I say many times that uh, one of the things that I would really like to see is that circle up above uh, Miller Park and number 17 hanging up there because you don't play, you play 17 years in the big leagues and you do what he did as well as he did. Uh, it's uh, very deserving. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yep. You know, uh, we talked, uh, me and you talked to set up this interview uh, and you talk, you're living in Arizona here now. And you mentioned all the old ball players living in Arizona, you know, so now that you're retired, do you guys get together? Do you, do people, old teammates stay in touch? You and Gantner do clearly, but what about some of the other guys? Well, you know, it's nice because I, I, I feel very blessed because I have a home in Arizona. My wife, Penny and I bought a home here about eight years ago. And uh, we like to come out here as wintertime as much as we can. And uh, so we enjoy it. But I see, you know, the guys in Milwaukee, like, uh, you know, the, you remember, remember names of Bulldog Kenny Sanders and, and uh, Jim Gantner and Gorman Thomas. Those guys I see in Milwaukee. When I come out here, guys that I, I stay in touch with are, are more like um, Jim Slayton lives out here. He lives, in, uh, lives about 40 minutes away. Um, Moose Haas lives close by. Robin lives here. A former teammate was only in Milwaukee a little bit. Jack Heideman lives here. Kevin Coble lives here. So um, I see those guys at functions. Uh, I don't see them a lot, but I, I stay probably in touch with uh, those guys probably once a month by phone or texting or doing something. And uh, uh, with this, what has really hindered is this COVID has really changed a lot because I've spent a lot more time in Arizona since COVID started. And COVID kind of pre-hems pre, uh, you from going out and, and seeing your friends and doing things that you want to do. Yep, definitely. Hopefully we'll be done with that soon. I'm hoping we have fans in the stadiums this year, right? I mean, that's. Oh, uh, that's yeah. uh, baseball is made for, for fans. And uh, yep. uh, we, let's just hope that this pandemic uh, runs its course and we get by it and we can get fans in stands. I think the players would like nothing better and baseball would like, and sports would like nothing better. Yep. Yeah. Well, Augie, uh, let's wrap up the first half of this interview. We'll take a couple minute break and we'll come back and we'll talk about the future. We talked about the past here. And uh, in the next half, we want to talk about the state of baseball and uh, you know how the Major League Baseball is currently operated and also the Brewers' upcoming season. So we'll be, be back. great. All be right, great. we'll Love be back in just a couple minutes. All right. All right. Sounds good. Right. Join us next time on the Bait and Switch podcast for the conclusion of our interview with broadcaster and former Milwaukee Brewer great Jerry Augustine. You've made it to the end of yet another Bait and Switch podcast. Spread the word.